Hello, this is Patrick, and it's time for Real Herbalism Radio. Real herbs, real life, real easy. Brought to you by thepracticalherbalist.com and sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, your source for high-quality, organic, bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose-leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. Visit them at mountainroseherbs.com. Show number nine, herbalism is the medicine of the people. It's more than a mantra for practicing herbalists focus on native plant species, as is today's guest, Candace Cook. We talk with her about how she found her way into herbalism, the plants and people who inspired her, and we delve into how her philosophy has gained her valuable insights into the world of plants. Later in the news, we all discuss co-opting the coop, an article that makes an interesting point about urban homesteading. And in Herbalism 101, we define the term colagog. Now, here are your hosts from thepracticalherbalist.com, Candace Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. I'm Candace Hunter. And I'm Sue Sierra Lupe. And, and welcome, welcome to, to Real Herbalism Radio. Today we have a guest herbalist with us, Candace Cook, who is a Southeast herbalist with a focus on natural herb, or, sorry, native herbs, bioregional medicine, and ethnobotany. Welcome to the show, Candace. Yeah, Thank welcome. you. I'm very happy to be here. So you've been working on herbalism for how many years now? I would say probably about eight years, eight or ten years. And that's not where you started off in life, is it? No, it's not. Um, my education before going into herbalism was in political science and developmental psychology. When I remember when I met you, you were talking about becoming a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And honestly, at the surface, that sounds about as far from herbalism as you can get. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we would hope. Yeah, yeah, if your life as a lawyer coincides with your life as an herbalist, that's sometimes not a portent of good things to come. That's true, yeah. that's true. I try to stay, no offense. <laughs> I'm taking, I'm not a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> so what was it that drew you to the herbal path then? Well, I had been using herbs, um, just learning how to grow them before I ever moved to Oregon. I lived in Virginia, and I was always drawn to the natural world and taking care of it. When I moved to Oregon with the intention of going to law school, environmental law, so not All right. too well. You were already yeah. thinking in the herbal <clears throat> direction. Then. I was. Yeah. I was already thinking, you know, what can I do to make things better for our planet? So then I met Candace. First herbal mentor, which is really incredible. I remember she gave me a really rich stinging nettle drink to help. A, oh, that sounds like <laughs> to help a hangover, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. It worked, though, and didn't it, it worked. And I was like, I want three pounds of stinging nettles. <laughs> Do you remember that? Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, that that we bought six pounds together between the two of us. It was like the biggest. It was. I had giant. no idea. This is massive. I know. You left me with like. Four of the pounds of the six. You're like, no way. I don't even think I can do more than one. Oh, wow. I remember that bag and you telling me a little bit of that story. It's all coming together now. Yeah. Yeah. So Candace was my first real introduction to medical or medicinal herbalism. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as I continued living in Oregon, I kept meeting more and more herbalists. Was still focused on, you know, becoming a lawyer. I took the LSAT test. Actually, it was around the beginning of the time when I was starting to prepare to apply for law schools. I had this moment where it just became very clear that that was not my path. 
I, oh, really? I had, you know, at that point, I'd had some of my friends coming to me, like, what should I do for this? What should I do for that? And I'm like, this is weird. And I had developed mm-hmm. a little apothecary, and I, I opened it, and I was thinking about my law school applications, and it was like, blah, like, this light shined, and my head opened up, and you're supposed to be an herbalist, Candace. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, it was very divine. Yeah. <laughs> After that, I uh, moved to Arizona, and I studied with Joanne Sanchez at Southwest Institute of Healing Arts. Uh, Joanne Sanchez was my teacher, and her business is called Botanica. So I studied with her for 14 months, and then she took me on as an employee, and I became an assistant instructor, medicine maker, and went on and on from there. Mm-hmm. What time of tincture making did she do? Was it just from brandy, out, uh, vodka? Or tincture? She... Tincture yeah. making? Yeah. Oh, um, she taught a... She taught us the folk method, you know, with brandy or vodka, just pouring over the herbs, filling a vessel and mm-hmm. pouring it. But we also learned ratios and mark dimension ratios and mm-hmm. um, yeah. solvent ranges for <laughs> all, that all the plants, stuff. Right. a lot of algebra, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and then we learned formulary. Mm-hmm. So then there's some algebra there. Mm-hmm. I would really like to write a class called Algebra for Herbalists. That would I be think, great. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been brainstorming it for a few years because I think... Most of us are very earthy and don't think of ourselves as being good at math, but if you get the right system down, it's not it's not too hard. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what about vinegars and obviously teas and oh, what other yeah. kind of stuff did you We learned all of it. I mean not probably every single thing, but we did oxymels and infusions and decoctions and tea blending and um you know, we encapsulated, we made our own tea bags. We learned a lot in her program. Mm-hmm. How long was that program? 14 months. Okay. Yeah. And it was a full-time job or is it just... I think I was in class about 20 hours a week. Okay. So... It's pretty much so a full-time. It was pretty good. 15 to 20 hours, depending mm-hmm. on the season. And it sounds like there's probably a lot of field work in there, too. We did a lot of field trips. We studied with ethnobotanists in the area. We had a lot of different manufacturers come to our class and talk about their practices and procedures. Mm-hmm. It was a rich program. Mm-hmm. What year was this at year? I started there in 2008 and finished in 2009. Okay. And then you practiced as a clinical herbalist, too, after that, right? I did, yeah. I, built, I slowly built a clinical practice. You know, it started out with friends and family. Mm-hmm. And let me give you, you got to experiment on somebody. You yeah. do, yeah. yeah. Do. Friends and family make great guinea pigs. They do. They do. Family is not necessarily my favorite group to practice with, but mm-hmm. they can be a little more hard headed and maybe don't want to mm-hmm. listen to you sometimes. But, but nobody says anything <clears throat> if you kick them. <laughs> it works for me. You gotta have maybe your... I should start kicking them. <laughs> listen. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of a lot of my clinical practice came from word of mouth, friends telling friends telling friends. Mm-hmm. I worked at an herb shop in Arizona, and was able to utilize some of the healing space in the back of the herb shop and to do consultations to do consultations. So mm-hmm. I built up a good bit of practice through the herb shop too. So that was neat. And then when I moved to Texas, it, I did a couple of holistic life fairs and that generated some, some clinicals. I don't know what that is. What's a holistic life fair? It was, um, they have those in the rest of the country. Oh, they're just not allowed in Oregon. Like, just okay. a fair. They don't need them in Oregon. I mean, oh, we live Yeah, dream. you probably don't. Yeah. Just a bunch of people who are practicing holistic modalities coming together and have a booth. I was the only herbalist, so I was selling 
things that I had manufactured and oh. I gave a lecture and then you know got some clients that way okay it's probably actually really a lot like a cross between our home show and our Saturday market oh yeah really probably okay. probably mm-hmm. there were it was a you know the event if you paid for the ticket and you could go listen to people giving all kinds of lectures I mean there was a lot of metaphysical lots of education stuff. sounds mm-hmm. like yeah Mm-hmm. That sounds so what was your favorite types of cases, I guess you could say, when you were working with the clinical? Hmm. What was your favorite approach or, you know, how did you, what did you like best? What I really like about working with people is, and using herbs, is I feel like herbal medicine being our most fundamental, the people's medicine, like we said before, I, it really has this amazing ability as a modality to bridge the gap between the physical whatever's going on with the physical body and then whatever's also going on with the emotional part of that person or the the spirit of that person and I like to use plants because I, I can address a physical issue but at the same time address whatever's going on with their psyche or their spirit mm-hmm. that's that's what I like the most so you're looking for links between mm-hmm. okay yeah so I, I incorporate a lot of plant spirit medicine and flower essences I like to use flower essences in combination with a tincture or a tea that I'm using just to get even more you know mm-hmm. well-rounded formula for that person and I've seen really good results mm-hmm. do you find yourself when you're conducting business that way that you become kind of a social worker yes yeah I actually considered getting a you know, furthering my education in clinical social work or psychology mm-hmm. or something because I, it, most of my clients come to me for that. Right. You know, right. they might have these other physiological things going on, but it seems like people seek me out for that, and that's what I'm, I'm good at, mm-hmm. and I love it. So I have thought of it. It's, it can be draining, you know, so you have yes. to take a lot of self-protective measures to make sure you, you don't lose all of your energy listening to someone, but it's to see someone's to see a shift in someone's interpretation of the world around them and their love for themselves because mm-hmm. you've listened to them and you've provided them with medicine that is specific for them and from the earth, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice. Yeah. What, are, what are some of the self-protective measures that you personally like to use? Um, you know, I like to take some time to just ground and center first you know I imagine that my roots are growing really deep into the earth and my branches are growing really out high up into the sky Mm -hmm. become a plant myself Mm -hmm. that's probably what I do most the most reliable practice I guess Mm -hmm. Uh, are there any like herbs or flower essences that you rely on in conjunction you know I haven't really thought about that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm always drinking tea, but I don't. I don't have one specific thing that I go to every time. Sure. Uh, there is a flower essence practitioner in Arizona named Katie Hess, and her brand is Lotus Way, and she makes fantastic, fantastic medicines. And she has one called um, Inner Peace that I've used quite a bit. She has it as a spray mm-hmm. or a liquid mm-hmm. elixir that you can take, you know, so lots nice. of different ways. That's a great one to have. Mm-hmm. Nice. We yeah. have a lot of people at our clinic that come back for the flower essences to help them with the life that they have living on the streets. Oh, And they've yeah. got their, you know, this is helping me get through it because that's a war zone. It is. Living through. Did you have patients like that? What was the type of patients that you had? I... 
for the past couple of years, I've run my clinical practice donation based, and mm-hmm. so I've had a lot of variety in the people that I've attracted. Uh, but I haven't. I honestly haven't had many people who were living on the streets or were living, you know, far below the poverty line. And I think that's just because it's not accessible all the time to them yet. And right. that is definitely something I want to focus on in the next part of my journey: is breaking down the barriers to so that everyone has access to this medicine because it's here for us and it's it can be affordable mm-hmm. and it can be. It's just, it reliably works. It consistently works. And so long as you get to know the person that you're working with, no matter where they're coming from, how much money they have, you can find something that's going to work to make their life better, Mm -hmm. whether it's a physical issue or emotional or spirit. And a lot of these people just need to be listened to. Right. Oh, yeah. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. There's a lot of power in just listening. Yeah. And actually hearing what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It strikes me as ironic that the one type of medicine that is so easy to access for in in real life it grows on our streets it grows in the trees it's all over that that's the one that has the reputation for being the most inaccessible for the poor mm-hmm. that right. that is not lost on me right but that's mm-hmm. the the privilege of choice that we only grant to those with a good pocketbook i know right. absolutely right. i like to think of myself as a radical herbalist because i want to break down these barriers and these walls and mm-hmm. keep stirring the pot you know like <laughs> right. i want everyone to have access to this medicine yes. everyone yeah right. no matter i don't know just there's no reason for everyone to not have access to well it. it's pretty clear that a healthy society benefits everyone right and it's more clear to people that work in healthcare know you really don't want to have someone with a contagious disease wandering the streets because they're just too poor to get help that that really doesn't help us we learned that in the in the black plague times and and it's it, with the ebola thing for example oh, yeah. health care needs to be for everybody or it just ain't it ain't gonna it's work not yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah so that's that's good. What else are you doing on your? You say you're not doing that anymore, or you are doing that anymore? Um, I have only taken a break because I've been traveling. Mm-hmm. So, so when I'm going back to it, I'm yes, I'm going to go back to it. I've tried several times when I've gotten quite exhausted to say I can't do clinical work anymore. Mm-hmm. But every time I'm telling you, like I would pack up all my stuff and say I'm going to sell it, and that day someone will call and say I really need your help right now. Yeah, right. Like, okay, well, I guess this is something I'm here to do. And so mm-hmm. I've just got to figure out how, for myself, you know, find more practices to help me not get drained. Right. You know, and and keep my energy up. And I think I also have to be involved in a lot of different aspects of verbalism. I can't focus solely on clinical work because mm-hmm. I'll it doesn't work for me. Or maybe having a good team behind you, an acupuncturist would be a really easy mm-hmm. person to work with. Um, just shelving the herbal apothecary itself, massage therapists, they really could use some help in that. I mean, they like their lavender essential oil like everybody else does, but Mm -hmm. there's a huge gamut of stuff when you've got someone coming in with all of this pain and just putting something topically on might not be good enough, and that's where someone like you would come in. So there's a lot of different places for that. Acupuncture for the people, they're charging $5 per visit. Wow. It's it like they just got sliding scale. Yeah, it's like 15 to 50. But, 15 to 50, yeah. You know, sliding yeah. But they scale. don't turn sliding people scale. away. Yeah. yeah, and they don't turn people away. Yeah. That's yeah. how I'd like to operate when I 
move back east after this journey um, and start getting something going. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely want to stick with a donation-based or sliding scale system of payment. Uh, right. A lot of people are so afraid of that. But Why is that, do you think? Well, I think there's this thing that happens when you finish your herbal training. If you go through a train- training program... And you're going to start helping everybody for free. Right. And then you get exhausted and you're drained and you're giving all of your resources away. So Mm -hmm. then you jump to the other spectrum. Well, I'm going to charge $200 an hour, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. but you need a balance. So I've tried both of those things. I've done it free. (laughs) I've charged way too much. And for me, I think there have been a lot of situations in my own life where if I had to pay an exorbitant amount of money, even though I value that person's time and what they're offering me, it's just it's I couldn't get to it because I didn't have the money myself. Right, and right. if people hadn't been willing to help me, I wouldn't be here right now. Mm-hmm. Like throughout my yeah. whole life, without the support of everyone I love, I wouldn't be here right now. So I want to make that available. Right. And right. it's worked out for me really well. I haven't I haven't ever felt like I was taken advantage of or that somebody wasn't really giving me what they could give me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been right. taken care of with it. Mm-hmm. But I do also think it's important for us to shift away from this preoccupation with amassing money for your trade when we're healers. Right. You know, we're healers. We're going to be taken care of. I, I, I believe 100% in trusting the universe is going to take care of you. If you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and you're being of service, mm-hmm. You're going to be taken care of, and that's right. been true for me the whole time. No. So, yeah, I'm not sure if I have faith in that theory, but I do believe <laughs> that you need to, just because I've seen the other end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do believe that you need to do what what is right, and you need to do it every single day, and you have to somehow take care of yourself. And the piece that you had mentioned about not charging and how draining that is, mm-hmm. and that's that's also a self image piece of. Uh, that a lot, particularly women, are taught this is something that should be given away. My time is not valuable. I right. shouldn't be getting restitution for it. When in fact, the opposite is is very true. If we're willing to spend money for our garbage service or for our electricity, then we should be able to have a place where we're spending money for other basic needs, mm-hmm. which would be healthcare. So that's extremely valuable, and and you need to have a place to hang your hat and and live a healthy lifestyle as well. So I firmly believe in gratitude, and I know that a lot of women have a hard time asking for that. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's what paying the bill is some way. Well, I mean, from a practical perspective, when you're on a plane and the airbags come down because it's going to crash or something, they always say, take care of yourself first, then your children. Right. Mm-hmm. If you don't take care of yourself, you cannot take care of anybody else. That's absolutely correct. And part of that is making sure you're getting paid mm-hmm. somehow. I mean, yes. whether it's the direct client in front of you that's paying you or you're getting a grant. I mean, Occupy Medical gets grants to mm-hmm. help the people. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, or whether you've got a great benefactor. Yeah, yeah, there's so much potential, and there's so much money in this world. Right. And there's so yeah. many people with money who want to do good, but they don't know what to do. So if yeah. you can find them and say, hey, I I need to make a living for myself, mm-hmm. and I also need to help a lot of people. Right. How can you help me do this? Right. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. The patients that we have come through the door, they're, even the ones that are the most destitute, are always looking for a way to repay Mm-hmm. You know, because right. that's part of that system. You, they understand they're being given this tremendous gift, 
and it helps them feel better about themselves. And when you feel better about yourself, then you want to be that person giving back. Mm-hmm. You know, right. if you feel like you're, my feet are now on the ground. Okay, I can, I can give back. And that's what, that's how you solve depression, for example, is by giving. You know, that makes people feel better. And that works on both ways. That's a, yeah, that's quite a balance that you're trying to strike there. Where's the new place that you're heading to? I'm moving back to Richmond, Virginia, my hometown. Okay. Yeah, you've been on the West Coast. You've done the desert. Mm-hmm. You went to Austin, Texas, which I remember you saying back when you first moved down there that there was a variety of both desert and more West Coast foresty herbs, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really neat conflux there. It was really neat. Texas, uh, Austin, where I was living, really felt like the place where East meets West. There mm-hmm. were huge cottonwood trees and also cypress trees. Oh, wow. There were cowboys and there were hipsters. You know, mm-hmm. it was all like kind of there together. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the plants, yeah, I saw a lot of Southeast plants. I saw a lot of desert plants. It was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't there long enough to really sink into it but i i went out and did plant walks as much as i could sure and then you of course grew up on the east coast Mm -hmm. and now you're heading back there so it's been kind of a giant loop it has (laughs) (laughs) really when it comes down to it what in all the places that you've been and what have been some of your favorite plants to interact with oh man the cottonwood tree is one of my favorites uh the buds are just amazing i love to make an oil infusion with the the sticky buds oh, yeah. in the cottonwood tree. It's such great oh, medicine. It's what fabulous. do you use that for? The, there's a whole bunch of names for the popular... Balm of Gilead. Balm of Gilead, oh, yeah. And it's yeah. super resinous, and it smells like it's heaven. Amazing. It's just a gorgeous little stick. It's, it, and it's it, the regular cottonwood it that's been like yeah. planted everywhere. It, mm-hmm. it plants itself. It, that's the stuff yeah. in the air that looks like cotton candy. Yeah, you just yeah. know your sinuses... You, uh, it's not like some horrible. special cottonwood or something. No, 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 like, no, no, it's no. everywhere. It's everywhere. Okay. Yeah. And There's some species that don't have quite the same fragrance, which mm-hmm. is disappointing, but I imagine they have the same properties. Mm-hmm. Like as an oil infusion, I like to use it for massage because it's anti-inflammatory like mm-hmm. a lot of the other poplars. But my favorite thing is just using it as a perfume. Oh, it right. makes my in your bathroom. I feel so good whenever yeah. I have myself covered in cottonwood oil. It's like a really great spirit lifter. Right. Right. And it preserves real well, too. It preserves. I mean, I made the first batch I ever made was in 2008 when I lived here in Eugene. Mm-hmm. And I still have some of the oil, and it's perfectly fine. It's never yeah. gone rancid nice. or anything. And I made it with fresh buds. Right, not dry them or anything. Well, another indicator is bees collect it to make propolis, and that's super preservative. Preservative. So that's that. That's an indicator of just what kind of a lifespan it has. Right. Mm -hmm. But even just putting that in a bag away from light, you you, it stays pretty well. You find that people because there's a lot of people who have um, respiratory allergies to cottonwood. Do those same people have problems with the? Oil or I do I'm not curious. know, but you know, when I lived in Arizona, a lot of people had ragweed allergies, no, and yeah. I found mm-hmm. that the ragweed tincture really helped with the allergies. Oh, I gave it a lot of times to people that had allergies, and it they're like, "What's in there?" Mm-hmm. So I'm betting maybe Hair maybe that dog. would be something to look up, look look into. Yeah, well, it's just so antimicrobial. I can't imagine that yeah. it would. And I know it is used um, as a tincture in some respiratory conditions, but I'm not. I haven't really used it that way myself, so mm-hmm. I'm not eczema. And it's a very. It's mm. really hard to de, to infuse. Like you got to. You that's one of those Everclear ones. 
the, the, the cottonwood or the ragweed? Cottonwood. The, oh, sorry, the cottonwood. Cotton okay. Sorry. Um, yeah, so because it's high oil, mm-hmm. so I think the one I felt most comfortable was using 80% of the Everclear and then 20% water, and it extracted really well. It's not like extracting myrrh, you know, where you're using 100% or propolis, but just a little bit of water seemed to help pull some of those other properties out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else? What other ones are, have been some of your favorites? So my favorite one in Virginia is probably passion flower. Oh, I mean, passion everybody loves passion flower. Yeah. It's it's so beautiful. It's another one that you just look at it's it and gorgeous. you're like, ah. So do great. you use any of the species of passion flower? Do you find those properties kind of go in between the different? That's a question I can't answer. Okay, All right. <laughs> but they, I mean, the incarnata. There's like 500 different species mm-hmm. of passion flower, and the incarnata is the one that's got the most research. That's the one that grows all over the southeast. Okay, okay. So I don't know. I know there's a friend of mine was telling me that a white passion flower was growing somewhere near her house in Portland, mm-hmm. but I don't think that had the same medicinal quality as the incarnata. Okay. But the fruit's good. You know, sure. over the summer before I, I left for this big journey, I my dad's backyard is covered in passion flower and and mm-hmm. I went out and grabbed some, and we were eating them, and he just couldn't believe it, like how delicious it is. And it, there's a thousand passion fruits growing uh-huh. all over. Right? Yep. Wow. My dad has expensive a, to has buy a, in stores. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he has a great Nervine yeah. yard. He's got passion flower and albizia, the the mimosa tree. Oh, growing. right. Sure. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah, we need some cap. relaxation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't see skull cap, but could be there. There's yarrow, mm-hmm. mullen. Yeah, a lot of those calming. Or what about lavender? Has he got that growing? No lavender. He has basil though. Oh. He has some basil. Okay, it's not wild. Sounds like he needs to get some lavender. Just kind of round out <laughs> his nervine yeah. collection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have a lot of favorite plants. It's hard. Yeah, I was going to say, I uh, remember you had a few desert favorites. Oh, yeah, Chaparral, the one that yeah. I wrote the column about, absolutely my closest desert ally. Yeah, thanks um, for letting us publish that on our oh, site. Oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah. That was an honor to me. Yeah. That one, um, I won't talk about it too much. Another one that grows in the desert is Encelia, or brittle bush. And that's kind of like a desert arnica. It's amazing at healing you know, bruise, bruises or any what? kind of injured connective tissue. I've used it on bones. I've wow. used it in. I use it on a cracked rib in mm-hmm. combination with comfrey. Okay, it, re- mm-hmm. it healed a cracked rib. And you're talking about use. Sorry, you're talking about using it as a poultice or a. For Encelia, actually, you uh, want to dry the flowers okay. and infuse them in oil, and then I usually will make a salve or keep the oil as a massage. It's a massage type oil. Mm. And then um, it also makes this resin that is really good for toothaches and some respiratory issues. You'd use it like you would propolis? Kind of. Mm -hmm. You could tincture it. Oh, and this is a really cool thing. The, The resin is so fragrant that when, you know, Catholic priests were coming to the Southwest, they've started using it instead of frankincense. Wow. That's kind of interesting. Mm hmm. Does it have similar... It sounds like it's some with similar properties as frankincense. It does, actually, huh? I never put that together. Mm. Even as, you know, as an incense and a medicine. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's something we're going to have to take a look at. Yeah, that sounds like an exciting herb. Yeah, definitely. So what are your other favorites from that area? Let's see. There's so many. 
<laughs> Yerba Santa is a great one. Mm-hmm. Yerba Mansa. A desert willow is actually a pretty fantastic one for yeah. fungal infections. Really? I was just going to say just analgesics, but more the than that, leaf, huh? The leaf you can powder and use on topical infections. I've had some experience using it in clients with uh, vaginal yeast infections, I'm using mm-hmm. it as a douche in combination with some other things. It's an amazing antifungal. With a vinegar wow. base? For the or, douche? Yeah. No, no, yeah. just a water infusion. Oh, interesting. Simple. Mm-hmm. Very simple. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cured it in five days. Well, that's wow, good. that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I know. It's a very beautiful thing. <laughs> So that's one of my favorites. Um, Do you have any East Coast ones besides Passion Flower that are you're looking forward to really connecting with? Oh, American ginseng. Mm-hmm. I just can't wait to get there. I want to. I want to cultivate American ginseng and Golden Seal at some point in the next three to five years when I have a place to do it. But American right. ginseng is one of my favorite herbs that I use all the time. It's mm-hmm. so gentle. Um, it's it's just very uplifting to your whole system you know without being overstimulating which mm-hmm. a lot of ginseng that's what yeah. it's used for but i think american ginseng has a lot of potential it's been treated terribly on the east coast oh, yeah. most of our american ginseng is shipped to china oh, oh. yeah <sighs> i know i know and and that started with jesuit priests in canada in the 1700s they started been a long time then and it's mm-hmm. you know i just spent all this time on the trail and didn't see any and it I used know. to be quite prolific so i'm hoping that when i go back and i can spend more time in the environment find it just i just want to communicate with it i don't even want right. to harvest it yet mm-hmm. so so and part of that is not only over harvesting but all the deer going through and and pulling that out isn't that i don't know if deer have an affinity for it but you know, there's mountaintop removal and right. building pipelines. And so the environment, it's mostly being poached. But mm-hmm. with all the environmental devastation that's happening, too, it's, it's yeah, kind of a lot more. There's a lot more population and a lot more industry, really, on, mm-hmm. the, on the East Coast than there is out here. Yeah, it needs our protection. It does. For yeah. sure. Yeah. The United Plant Savers have several articles about that that they've been trying to get people's information on mm-hmm. you know don't buy wildcrafted american ginseng just don't mm-hmm. do it mm-hmm. and you can grow it it's, i mean yeah. it takes a, it takes a while you got to be patient you got to be patient i met a man on the trail who his family actually planted american ginseng they wanted to start a ginseng business and someone mm-hmm. found out and stole all of it <gasps> no. before it was even ready i mean it was oh, only a few years old it needs oh. it needs to be like eight years old so oh that makes me sad there's hope though sad. i'm gonna go back and fix it that's well, right not well, fix you, it but you do your, your medicine for the people you get the word yes. spread that's how you fix things through education and yes. being a positive absolutely. example yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. well thank you for yeah. having us thank you yeah. thank you for coming you. thank you herbalism and homesteading news we discussed the article co-opting the coop by marianne kirby we published by Bitch Media Online in November 2014. We spoke about the author's premise that the urban homesteading movement is taking away from the people for whom homesteading is about survival rather than a reconnection with the past or some other non-survival motivation. Today I'd like to talk about an um, article called Co-opting the Coop, which was published in Bitch Media just recently and is a 
republication of an article that was originally published, I think, in 2012. Mm -hmm. The article is by Marianne Kirby. And it talks about the phenomena of urban homesteading and how that is affecting uh, the people who do homesteading because they have to. Right. It seems that the premise of the article is that when you make something trendy, then it has this uh, gentrifying effect on the uh, thing itself, in this case, homesteading. And they're using a pretty broad term, everything from raising chickens to making jam to... To embroidering. To embroidering. I I think she... Knitting is also something that that she mentions. And she's saying in this whole thing that you... You have all of these homesteader industries that have become very popular. And in the, uh, talking about crochet and knitting, this particularly affects you, Candace. <laughs> Look at what happened to the price of yarn and the price of wool. Yeah, actually, I've started spinning in part because yarn's really expensive. Because so it's, it's popular it's cheaper now. to buy, my, buy myself a fleece and wash it and spin it and mm-hmm. dye it because, you know, I just can't afford those expensive prices. Yeah, they're commanding it because they can. The little yarn shops that, you know, the the variety you get now is pretty amazing. You can get some beautiful stuff. Well, I remember when I was young, my mom had a yarn shop they went to. And, yeah, the yarn there was really expensive. But you could get decent, cheap yarn Mm -hmm. from... You know, the Ben Franklin. Right. Or right. wherever. I can't remember the various names of the craft places. Yeah. But, but now even the Ben Franklin yarns are, they're very nice, wonderful yarns, but some of them can be really expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that kind of thing has a pretty deadening effect on it for the rest of us that are using our homesteading skills to keep us going through the winter or, or keeping us clothed. You can't, in, how many fabric stores are around today? Oh, no, God. No. And the fabric stores, it's more expensive to make your own clothing than it is to buy your clothing. Exactly. Just go to Goodwill. That's the thing now, actually, with the actual mm-hmm. hipsters. that Not that, you know, hipstering thing is real or not real, but hipsters that are they're college kids or college-age kids, and they are barely able to afford the clothes on their back, so they go to St. Vincent de Paul or Goodwill, and they get these used clothes, and then their sewing is refitting those other yes. clothes that that's how they're able to they enjoy sewing but they can't afford to go to a fabric store and get these expensive fabrics we, we had a friend that did that that was her, the whole model of her business they would find really cool clothing fix it up and then sell it mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah so yeah because you can't afford to to do it the way that our parents used to do it is now that kind of stuff is very trendy although sewing is not really as trendy as it used to be beading is extremely trendy mm-hmm. well you and that's faded out beading has always been bloody expensive it's, uh, it's going I never, up now though. i never remember time when beading was affordable right <laughs> when you go to garage sales or yeah. you know that's how i would get it but even now you can't yeah this. The thing I found in this article is that she she talks a lot about the ways that the modern, slightly wealthier people who are getting into homesteading mm-hmm. are driving up the costs. Like, you know, they'll buy the ridiculously expensive chicken coop from, she cites one from William Sonoma. I'm sure you can get them from a variety of places mm-hmm. where you're spending, you know, $2,000 on a chicken coop. and. You know, you start doing the math of adding this pricing up, and you think, well, it's cheaper to just buy organic farm-fresh eggs from a real farmer (laughs) at five bucks a dozen. (laughs) And then add your expensive feed and all of the other fine little things. They heat them now and all kinds of fancy lights in and whatever. Massage chicken classes or something. I don't don't even know what they're doing these days. But But even at the local farm stop, 
you know, chicken coops are not cheap. No, right. they're not. Yeah. You know, the Wilco locally here, they're three, four hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. A chicken coop. Right. You know, right. which and if I when I when we used to buy eggs from a farmer, his chicken coop was just a bunch of chicken wire slapped up with some fence posts and the chickens ran around and there was a little bit of a makeshift impromptu shelter. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think, you know, what she's talking about is the difference between that type of homesteading where it's really very practical and it ain't pretty, but it does the job. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the pretty homesteading where you've got a pretty little chicken coop that has the nice red roof and it's, you know, asphalt shingles and gutters and, you know, windows. (laughs) I mean, that they're pretty chicken coops. (laughs) They're pretty artistic chicken coop, but it's not really financially a practical thing. It's like a hobby. It's not homesteading. Yeah. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, that's not home. If you ain't, if that's not what you're doing to survive, that's not really homesteading. That's that's a beautiful part of your life, and it's 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 got value in and of itself. It's life and art combined. I don't know. It's still arts and crafts. I mean, a a quart of canned tomatoes is a quart of canned tomatoes, regardless of who put them up or why. But I think the difference would be in the amount of um, investment that was made to get to that quarter tomatoes mm-hmm. yeah. and what was done to do that versus right. someone that's on subsistence or low income is going to completely have a different way and take on doing tomatoes right. versus someone that can go to Williams-Sonoma afford every top-of-the-line piece of canning equipment mm-hmm. and yeah. then you have heirloom tomatoes and do the whole thing and then be running around in their soccer, I'll say it, soccer mommy vehicle and look what I did. you know, right. I, you know, And then there's that whole difference and I think that's kind of what this article is saying is that it's 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 kitchen it's in 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 fashion mm-hmm. to do it yeah. versus yeah. needing to do it yeah, yeah and it forces out the people that really need it for survival and uh, you know the other part of that is is these days the people that need it for survival don't have the time to do these homesteady things whether it saves them money or not right because right. they're having to work two jobs and right. they're still raising their kids and and still not able to to afford rent Right. And that's that's the reality is the people that really need it, they don't have the time to do it. Right. And a lot of them have lost that because they come from more than one generation of not having and needing to work multiple mm-hmm. jobs. And, you know, parents or grandparents that eschewed all of that stuff because it was Depression era. Right. And you know, there was a lot of stigma with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those skills start to disappear. And that's what I liked about the the homestead movement it was resurrecting a lot of these skills that some people need and some people have the luxury of being able to use but it is just it it is mm-hmm. it has become luxury items right you know the people that i know working in the clinic that desperately need to figure out a, a space in their spot to they they may be growing things in their backyard but then it turns to rock because they don't know what to do with it they didn't or they don't have the time to do it. something with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's a rental anyway, so it's you know the plant is barely struggling as it is, and they don't have they just don't have the time in their life to be able to put that into a canner, nor do they have a canner which is expensive. Yeah, it's a hundred dollars for a canner. Yeah, well, if you buy a brand new. Well, yeah, but I'm just saying know. even even a piece of aluminum with a pressure gasket seal, something that that shouldn't cost that much money to produce. Yeah, is eighty five dollars for a new yeah, one. No, you can find yeah. them on Craigslist for. Yeah, thirty dollars. You sure. gotta know your sources. But the thing is, what but I was, they don't. But they along don't, along yeah. with this, the the um, the the point that you said about um, having time, is having uh, the income. Mm-hmm. Uh, canning jars, although they can be used again, the lids cannot be right. You know, yeah. so you have to do that. And then you've got um, energy. I mean, if you don't have a good stove, 
Forget mm-hmm. it. You're not going to can. You know how long it takes to pressure can on yeah. a I do. very like bad electric, electric stove. I've done that. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> yeah. you've increased your time. Now, if you had, you know, now do you have an external burner? Well, I think we do. Sure. I can put out thousands of BTU and you can get canning done quickly. Mm-hmm. But that would come into what this lady is saying about how, you know, we've moved it into an area where we could afford to buy equipment that would make it faster for us. But mm-hmm. is that outside of what she's talking about being designery? Yeah. We I did am. it as a course of function. Yeah, I inherited yeah. most of my stuff. Right, right. You know, and with all the other cousins out there, the reason it came to me is because I was just so desperate to use every little bit that, you know, mm-hmm. the cast iron skillets, yes, I'll take them, please, I'll take them. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, I have friends that they, they where'd you get your cast iron? You know, because mm-hmm. they want them now. Right, because they're expensive. Mm-hmm. Right, they Incredibly are expensive. expensive. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in my family, we do homesteading things not because it's trendy, but because it's practical. Mm -hmm. And it's one way I can give my family more luxury for less dollars. Like, I'm a crap gardener. I mean, there's just no way around it. I suck at gardening. Mm -hmm. I do not produce yields that would feed a family of mice. (laughs) I'm just really not good at it. But I do know which farms have which sales when, and I know my prices. And at the end of the season, I go down and I spend, you know, 100 bucks, 200 bucks buying three to $400 worth of vegetables that I then freeze and dry and can and put up in one way or another that I use throughout the year. And then we're pulling out wonderful what you know canned tomatoes that taste like i just roasted them mm-hmm. and they're sweet and they're so tomatoey and right. it was super easy for me to do and it feels like i just spent you know five bucks on that quart of canned tomatoes when in reality it's a two dollar item for yeah. me yeah you know i can make my income go further that way i can't afford to go buy the artisan canned tomatoes that taste as good yeah same for us in you soap know. i make my own soap because i'm allergic to most of the soap that's out there but yeah. I also know other people that are allergic to, they have the same allergy as I have, and they just, they don't have the time, they don't have mm-hmm. the space, they certainly don't have a place to cure their soap right. in their teeny little apartment, so they just deal with the fact that they are miserable and have a rash all the time. Right. That's just the way it is. Welcome right. to poverty. So their, their purpose in this is to say, some of the, you know, people are making law changes and are to accommodate some of these kind of hipster, I hate using that term derogatively because it makes it me sound like I'm against the progress that the youth wow. have to offer us. The new urban homesteading movement. Urban homesteading movement. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> yes. That's what I mean to say. So the um, the kind of laws that they're doing, that they're changing right now in order to accommodate the needs of these upper echelon urban homesteaders. This person up here who says that they invented the term urban homestead and they're sending notes to people where where's this little right there's a here? family that is now making quite a bit of money apparently the Dervais family entrepreneurs behind the urban homestead project they've been doing this for 10 years oh wow 10 years we, you know they practically about, invented yeah, they, they, we knew about urban homesteading before then i mean yeah. it wasn't yeah. something they, that they yeah. you know it's the gall of some people to do that and say well, we made the term, so now we own it and we've co-opted it. Right, and they're right. harassing other people with it. Yeah, when I read okay. that section of the article, it seemed at first like she was trying to say you shouldn't make money off of homesteading. That's wrong. And mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that's what, you know, honestly, that's what that's Practical the- Herbalist and Real Herbalism Radio and Practical Herbalist Press in part are about, is making uh-huh. enough money so I can do what I love to do. So we can continue to homesteading. It, yeah. share it with the world. I'm, I'm very happy to give away a lot of free information, mm-hmm. and I want some money to come back so that... 
I don't have to go bag groceries for somebody else just mm-hmm. so that I can afford to keep canning and telling people how to can. Yeah. The fireside you know, people. It's ridiculous. They're, they're, it's the extreme. Yes, that, those the extreme, extreme people. The firesider are people who says, well, we, we copyrighted the term firesider, so y'all can't be using it now. Right. When it's an old technique and, and it's that's been just, it's greed-based. It's right, it would be like copying, copywriting the term beer or pale ale, right, or, or pale tea ale, or, or something yeah. like that. Right. Yeah, so they're, they're, that's another example of, of jumping on a trend and then using it as a PowerPoint against people that need it, and right. that's not okay. There's right. nothing okay about well, that. And if, if this is what this woman is is saying, you know, I I agree with that. You know, you can read an article a couple different times yeah. and get several different takes on it. But she does have a piece on here that it's towards the end where she says I'm not homesteading because I needed to survive that these are my roots and she goes on a little bit more and then she says to be aware of how the new energy and urban homesteading movement can negatively impact the people who will continue to use these skills out of necessity and I think that's kind of the crux right there and yeah and and we're all at this table uh you know supporting that kind of concept but yeah, she ends it with it's not a lifestyle choice it's simply life and and that's the practical part yeah. You know, that's the reality of it. But turning it into spending, you know, thousands of dollars to put your chickens up. When I know people that put their chickens in in an old dog crate and the chickens are perfectly happy. Yeah, they, they don't care as they long go, as it's warm. Yeah, they go into <laughs> their... Warm they, and safe. That's at the end of the want. day, they go in and they sleep. Mm-hmm. And it's over. And they all sleep in the same uh, uh, lane box. Yeah, you can yeah. build five billion lane boxes. They will only sleep in one. Right. That's it. They sleep on top of each other. It doesn't matter. Because my chickens do. They might be communists. I don't know. No, probably they all do. It's warmer (laughs) that way. It's warmer that way. It's safer that way. They're they're ridiculous creatures. This is their favorite spot. Well, and it's safer. If you're one of many piled up and a raccoon decides to stop on by, Mm -hmm. you stand a better chance of not being the one who gets eaten because there's so many right around you. Mm -hmm. You know? I mean... It's the flock mentality, yeah. so. Yeah. Okay, well, on that note. On that adorable, lovely note. It's true. But, yeah, I, I thought that she had a lot of good points and a lot of interesting points. Yeah. But I also felt like it's it's almost like she's trying to draw the line between who's poor and homesteading and who's rich in homesteading mm-hmm. and that there's a real big difference between, and there's some line somewhere and I'm saying, yeah, there it's, it's a progression people, yeah, you know, it and can be used as a tool against and a tool for, and in Eugene, for example, there's now a rule st- stipulating you can have chickens. You can't have roosters. You can't have chickens. They don't say anymore how many you can have. You used to be only. Oh, nice. Oh, They've changed it. They so changed it and they a, just no. left it open. And one of the reasons is because some of these wealthier people came in and said, we want to raise chickens. So, right. you know, two or three is not good enough for us. Right. So they changed the rule based on that. Now, if it was just poor people walking in, I don't know necessarily if the rule would have changed. But the interesting thing was the, the reason why city council changed that rule is because they realized that the economy had gone down and some people are using it for subsistence. Right. But the people asking for the change weren't subsistence uh, right. folks. Right. See, so there's know, it, that blend. It goes back. Yeah, it goes yeah. back and forth. Yeah, but yeah. Bottom line, uh, trends should not be used to control us. If we can use those trends to make our lives better, we're all better off. Right. right. I've got no problem with that. Yeah, I think the wealthier people kind of owe it to those who do it to survive, oh, yeah. to keep an eye on the laws and yeah. to think about you know how to open things up so everybody 
can yeah. enjoy this. Just don't be blind to the needs of others. And if yeah. you want to spend two thousand dollars on trick and goop, have at it. Have at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This time in Herbalism 101, Sue and Candace define and pronounce the term kolagogue. Hi, Sue. I have a really fun word for you today. I'm excited. And I'm going to spell it because it's one of those weird words that we don't normally actually even read. It's the CH word when I come across it when oh. I'm reading. Can we say it in front of children if it's the CH word? It is. Safe okay. to say in front of children okay. if you know how to pronounce it. Although I, it might make your ears explode. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, gross. There's an <laughs> for that. All right. So here's how you, how, here's how you spell it. Okay. C-H-O-L-A-G-O-G-U-E. Yeah. Cologogue. All right, yep. you sound so intelligent. I know, I know, I've got you all fooled. Yeah, yeah. But she's not telling you. It took us five minutes to figure out how to pronounce that word. So what the heck does that word do? Um, what does that mean? What, it, it's based, it's a fancy word for a type of bitter, which uh, stimulates the bile from your gallbladder and to your duodenum. So, so it's an important digestive aid. Most definitely. So people that have a really slow bile duct, people um, that have a hard time digesting fats. Or people that um, have had their gallbladder removed, have their gallbladder removed, or but then they're not going to be able to excrete bile anyway. So I suppose that's going to help them. But they could do it just for (laughs) just for fun. For fun, (laughs) yes. The other term that comes into my head that's not appropriate. Uh, So there's the other reason would is if you have a hard time pulling uh, minerals out of your food. If you find yourself, like if people that have high blood pressure and they're not pulling enough magnesium out of their food, a lot of times it's because their gallbladder is really sluggish. Okay, so and imagine colo- like menopausal women might run into that. Adolescents could run into it mm-hmm. as well. People that are prone to ulcers, for example, okay. would really need that. So the types of herbs that are cologog include lavender, I yes. know. Yes, thank goodness. Turmeric. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, golden seal is another yeah. one. Although Anything with that really bitter taste. Oregon grape. Oregon grape, probably a better choice than golden seal. Yeah, yeah. there's the a lot part. of herbs that are very bitter that will start. Even lettuce. Is a, mm-hmm. Usually you're eating a salad before a meal to stimulate your, your digestion so you're pulling as much out of your food. And that's a standard practice that people have and have kind of abandoned, but there's a reason for that. It's just enough to trigger the digestive system to get moving and get the acid balance right. in your in your uh, digestive system so you can properly assimilate. Lovely. So cholagog, not cholagogi or cholagogi or anything like cholagog. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or chalagalog. <laughs> the C-H word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you so much, Sue. Yeah, thank you. If you want the dirt on herbs, herbalism, or anything else related, you can send your question using our simple contact form at realherbalismradio.com slash herbalism101. We will do our best to answer your question on a future episode of Real Herbalism Radio. Thank you for listening to Real Herbalism Radio. Your hosts have been Candace Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. To find more information and recipes from today's show, or to leave a comment or suggestion, visit us online at realherbalismradio.com. Feeling social? You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the practical herbalist. Don't forget to look up our ebooks and herbal folios at amazon.com. Use the search terms practical herbalist. 
This show is sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, purveyors of high-quality organic bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose-leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. Visit them at mountainroseherbs.com. If you'd like to sponsor Real Herbalism Radio, just contact us through our website at realherbalismradio.com slash contact. Till next time, this is Patrick with Real Herbalism Radio and thepracticalherbalist.com.